millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. So what we're talking about this time round is 1917, the film that came out in 2019 in America, but 2020 in Britain. And oh my goodness, that's a lot of numbers I've already just thrown at you. And I'm really impressed I managed to get that out in take one. So what are we going to talk about this time round? We're going to talk about a bit about cinema history. Weirdly, we're going to talk a bit about Donald Trump's presidency and the pandemic, and also we're going to be talking a lot about World War One. A lot of stuff coming from a movie that really only meant to be talking about one of those things, but we're gonna go places. But first of all, the movie. And I'll be interested to know if you've actually seen 1917, because in a way, on the one hand, it's a very traditional kind of film. If you go back 30 years, historical epics were the sort of things that could do well at the Oscars and do very well at the cinema, at the actual box office. So, look, we could go further back into the sword and sandal type things. It could be Spartacus, it could be the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, it could be the longest day, it could be Gladiator, it could be The Last Emperor, it could be Gandhi, it could be Saving Private Ryan Schindler's List. You get the idea. There's a lot of prestige movies I've just mentioned there. It'll be interesting to see how many of those you've actually seen. And all of them made a bunch of money, and all of them were pretty well reviewed. Well, except maybe not the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. That was sort of seen as a bit stodgy and towards the end of the Sword and Sandals epic. But hey, not everything's a winner. You get my point. But here's the thing. Nowadays, in the 21st century, since 2008 and the start of the MCU, superhero movies have basically been around since the 1970s with the original Superman. But now, after 2008, that year, in the same summer, saw the release of the first Iron Man, which launched an entire universe of movies, which have generated tens of billions of dollars over the last 15 years. But the other superhero movie, or at least 
yes, I guess superhero or comic book movie that came out in 2008, summer of, was The Dark Knight. And so you've now got the two different types of things. The crowd pleasers, think the Avengers, and then something that might well get to the Oscars, Joker. And where's the room for the big historical epics? What was the last big historical epic that blew the doors off financially? Come on, off you go, hurry up. <laughs> do, you, do you see where I'm going with this? So my point here is simply that what we got with 1917 was actually quite a risk. It's not necessarily guaranteed to make its money back financially. If we go, for example, to the year 2022, admittedly this is a few years after 1917's release, but in that year we had three movies, historical movies, all of them were very well reviewed. But, well, let's talk about what happens next. So first of all, we've got The Northman, which is uh, an Eggers-directed film. It's all about Scandinavian mythology, if you like, and it's a cracking film. I loved it, but it cost nearly $90 million to make, and it grossed at the box office $90 million. Now, if you haven't heard this before, basically, whatever the cost was, you need two and a half times that at the box office to know that you're making a profit. Because obviously money has to go to distribution, has to go to the actual movie theatres. They need some money to show these things after all. So by the time you paid everybody off, you need two and a half times what the original amount was for you to start turning a profit. So just doing the same as your budget, you have failed. So... It's an example of a great film, but didn't do great financially. Then the other one, The Woman King, all about the Dahomey Amazons in Western Africa, based loosely on some real history, got great reviews and, you know, is a cracking and surprisingly old-fashioned movie. Yes, the whole cast is of colour, and a lot of them are women, and there's even a kind of a, a same-sex romance going on there. That wouldn't have happened at the time of Cleopatra's movie in the 1960s with Elizabeth Taylor. But that to one side, that's window dressing of modernity there. The core of it could be another gladiator, could be another Spartacus. It's actually kind of rather old-fashioned in its storytelling. It was very well reviewed. It was reaching out to a different audience, which normally responds really well to this. And indeed, compared to something like Get Out, it grossed quite a lot of money, about 90 to 100 million. Problem was, again, its budget was about that as well. And then the third one barely got a cinematic release. That's All Quiet on the Western Front, the German version that's now on Netflix. It won a bunch of Oscars. It's worth pointing out the other two didn't. So it did that part of the business, but it certainly didn't make its money back financially at the cinema because it was never meant to. So you can see we're in a very different world now where are the older people going to the cinema? Because 12-year-olds generally don't want, and sometimes the ratings of these movies don't allow for 12-year-olds to go and see them. They might be rated 15 or, you know, R-rated in America, etc. And how many 12-year-old kids from Wyoming want to see a movie about Scandinavian folklore. They really should have, because it was awesome. But also, it's pretty adult too, I say, di digress. So, 10 out of 10 to everybody involved in giving Sam Mendes enough money to create a World War I drama. And I'm going to be completely honest. When I first saw 
some footage from it, I went, oh, it's another World War One drama in the trenches. Because there are a lot of them. It could be Journey's End. It could be The Trench. It could be All Quiet on the Western Front. But then I heard the conceit. The idea is we're going to follow these two soldiers and basically, it's going to look like that doesn't cut away. Now, in reality, even in the film, it does go dark in the middle for good reasons. And it allows a very different flavour for the second half of the movie. But at that point, it's like, okay, I haven't seen that before. Because the, the amount of times I've seen Tommies cowering in trenches talking about the horrors of war as they sort of clutch their Lee Enfields... Uh, and their brody helmets are sort of like, you know, they're hunkering down underneath their helmets. Yeah, fine. Historically accurate. Pretty miserable. Seen it a bunch of times before. Show me something new. But this time I was like, that's surprisingly refreshing. And actually, when I saw it, it's like, okay, I get it. It's now a kinetic race against time. These men are going to have to get out of the trenches. And that instantly makes it more exciting. So the basic story of 1917, if you don't know, is that, in essence, there's been a retreat by the Germans, which has led the British to think that they can move forwards, which they can to a certain extent, but then there's the Siegfried line, where it's basically a trap for British soldiers. And one of the soldiers' brothers is going to be in the regiment that's going to attack the Germans where they're actually at their strongest, and he's going to get mown down. And these two messengers need to get there as fast as possible to stop it before, you know, all hell breaks loose. It's got lots of little cameos. You know, it's got Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch and a few other people you'll kind of recognise, and it's like, that's that's great. But the reality is it's all about the two central characters and what's great about that is they're sort of relatively unknown but up-and-coming actors we're talking about dean charles chapman and george Mackay, and 10 out of 10 to both of them they do such a good job and just their banter between each other is just so natural for so long and of course they're having to do this while hitting their marks in terms of a technical achievement because obviously this can't all be done in one take that's kind of impossible but this is all done through the trickery of sam mendes who has vastly improved as a cinematic director rather than a theater director since you started off with american beauty all thanks to roger deakins now if you don't know who roger deakins is he is a British cinematographer, and the point of cinematography is you've got a, literally another cameraman to, to do the shots, but the cinematographer is to get it to look right. So I have issues with the Blade Runner sequel. In fact, I have an issue with both Blade Runners. I think they look gorgeous. I think they're a little bit slow and a little bit pompous, but what I will absolutely give them is they always look gorgeous, particularly the sequel. It's just achingly beautiful and like periods of like how did you do that the, the whole the whole screen looks like it's full of dust maybe that's how you did it maybe it's a special effect maybe it's some really clever lighting oh just and the light reflecting off the water as well i just ah oh, it's just it is one of the most beautiful films ever filmed roger deakins and, and basically he just adds a sprinkle of magic dust to any film that he's the cinematographer for and he has been one of these people who's been nominated again and again for an oscar and again and again 
failed to get an Oscar. So he's a silver-haired man by the time he makes 1917. But what I'm pleased to announce in the 2020 is that the movie won a total of three Oscars. Now, they're all technical Oscars, but one of them was for Best Cinematography. So finally, for an entire lifetime of bringing us beauty, Roger Deakins finally gets that golden statue to remind us all of what amazing career he's had. Again, I would really recommend you do like an IMDb search on him and just look at the amount of movies. Like I say, not all the movies are great movies, but they're always great looking movies. And you just realize he's worked with some amazing directors. He's worked on some amazing movies. And a lot of your, a lot of the iconography of modern cinema is thanks to that man. Huge respect. Roger, if you ever hear me saying this, please know that you've just got a huge fan in the presenter of this lowly little podcast. Okay? Anyway, let's move on. That's, if you like, the technical side of the movie. But to give you an idea of what's kind of going on in it, they start off in the British trenches. And then they have to get out of the British trenches. And then the, there's this really tense moment of, well, have the Germans left those forward trenches or not? Because we all know the whole point of World War One was you're safe in a trench, relatively. And as soon as you're out in no man's land, you are extraordinarily vulnerable. And it's just a wonderful nail-biting moment of nothing actually happening. So I don't want to give too much away, but then they get into the German trenches, and I'll get into the technical stuff later on. So if you like, they go from the British trenches across no man's land into the German trenches, then they head out the back of the German trenches, they're into the artillery pits, and then they go out into the green fields beyond, which is also a name of a play that Sam Mendes directed about a tank crew which I really enjoyed. I thought that was really great, really interesting and imaginative. It's great to see something about World War One that didn't involve trenches. And yeah, so huge love to him on that one. It's just my problem with American Beauty, as I said before, is one of my wife's close friends worked for Sam Mendes, and quite rightly, she was extremely loyal to him, saying, oh, it's an amazing film, blah, blah, blah. The Oscars absolutely agreed with her. But I was sort of like, I was very much whelmed by it. You know, people go, oh, it's one of the greatest directorial debuts of all time. Most directorial debuts don't get a chance to reshoot the first 20% of the film because the director doesn't feel it right. Most directorial debuts you're doing on a shoestring budget rather than getting a whole studio behind you, etc. There are lots of exceptions to this. So it's like, it's not quite as innovative as people thought it was. I actually thought the whole movie was pretty pompous. And I also thought the whole message of, of material things don't make you was much more excitingly done in Fight Club. So there we go. So for all kinds of reasons, I'm kind of over American Beauty, and I find it interesting. People don't really talk about it anymore. But as soon as we get into Road to Perdition, his second film, it's like, there we go. Now we're into some pretty amazing cinematography. Roger Deakins again. And it's a really exciting movie, and I'm there, and you've made Tom Hanks a bad guy. It's just all this kind of interesting stuff going on. And then you've got Jarhead, and so on and so on and so on. He's done James Bond movies, obviously, as well, including Skyfall, which is widely considered one of the best James Bond movies. And guess who did the cinematography on that one? I think you start working out. The point is, with 1917, you've got a director who's kind of on fire. You've got a cinematographer who's one of the most reliable men in the industry. You've got an interesting idea of let's keep things moving, rather than two hours of people sitting there in a trench going nowhere, talking about how horrible war is, without even seeing any of the war. You just get to see the squalor. It's like, let's show them the war. 
let's get these men to do something. Let's get these men to move. So, you know, sometimes they're walking and talking and the camera's still following them. There's some great making of bits around it saying, we always shot overcast because it just made editing easier, but it's sometimes men, it's like, oh no, it's a beautiful sunny day. We can't shoot. <laughs> I guess you had a chance to have some fun activities or something like that, but no, you're unable to shoot in that situation. But it absolutely paid off because 1917 was not one of the biggest grocers of all time or anything like that, but it absolutely made its money back. It won three Oscars. Well, this is the thing. Did it, was it financially successful? Yes. But going back to the 1960s, you would have a movie that was one of the biggest hits of the year being a historical drama. That just doesn't happen anymore. Everybody walked away with some cash in their pocket, some golden statues, mission accomplished. It was never meant to make a billion dollars, but it could have made a billion dollars, including inflation, had it been an old-fashioned movie. It is worth pointing out, if you take into account inflation, the biggest grossing movie of all time is Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is the biggest grossing movie of all time, if you take into account inflation, and that's grossed over three billion. So, well done that movie, which is, of course, a historical drama with lots of problems about racism in it to the modern viewer. But anyway, you take my point rather than the politics of the film. That just doesn't happen anymore. So, as I said, it actually came out in 2019 in the US and it took a few months for it to come out in the UK. And it came out right at the beginning of 2020. So we got to see it and this is why it was able to make some money before you get to the global pandemic. So it was one of the last movies, like that and the Bad Boys movie as well. They were the ones who just managed to make some money before all the movie theatres shut down. And so those two sort of like sat, well, because it was technically in 2019 in America, it didn't sort of like hit the 20s charts. But like the Bad Boys for Life movie for most of the year was the biggest grossing movie of the year. I mean, it did well financially, but it was sort of, you know, it's because the other movies didn't get a chance to come out. But here's the weird connection now with Donald Trump's presidency, because clearly Donald Trump, maybe he didn't see the movie, but he was aware of the marketing. Because once we get to the pandemic of COVID, people started comparing it to the Spanish flu, which started in 1918. And this is where we get these sorts of comparison. I, I literally had a friend of the family say, hey, look, 1920, Spanish flu. 2020, we've got COVID. Coincidence? And my answer was yes, because Spanish flu started in 1918. 2020 was the tail end of the pandemic. We're going into the beginning of a pandemic. It seems that the science is showing that the Spanish flu started in America whereas COVID started in China. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of differences between these two. You're just trying to make it sound like some kind of global conspiracy. I think you can tell I was a little bit miffed at him. But yeah, don't come at me with half facts, please, that you've kind of read on the internet, sorta, kinda. Anyway, my point here is that people started comparing it to Spanish flu including Donald Trump. He goes, oh yeah, you know, there was that pandemic that started in 1917. No, it started in 1918. You're just repeating the name of a movie that you kept seeing. And he made this mistake repeatedly. So inadvertently, he was giving 
promotional plug to a movie that was just coming out on video on the... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Demand online or rental, etc. So, well done, Donald Trump, maybe, for that. I'm pretty sure Sam Mendes is not going to say that. But, hey, there's no such thing as bad PR. Is there? Question mark. So that's sort of really interesting about the movie. Now let's go into the historical nature of what's going on in World War One. I've got strong opinions on World War One. Look, I'm going to say it again now here at this point. I figure it's the right time. Please, if this is the first time you've come onto the podcast, please click subscribe. Please give us a review on whatever podcasting app you're on. It helps people find us. Thank you very much. Just trying to spread the word a little bit. Tell an actual human being, maybe in the office or somebody you you work with or play with or whatever on the same team with great good for you say yeah i've enjoyed this little history podcast i think you'll like it too but please help us spread the love thank you very much the other thing i'm going to say is it's two episodes a week come at me i'm at gem deduccio on twitter let me know what you thought of the past ones give me some ideas for the future ones i take requests i have to do two a week that keeps me pretty busy so, uh, yeah, always interested in some new ideas. I can't guarantee I'll necessarily do them, or indeed I'll do them soon, but I will listen to you, I, I promise, okay? So, let's get to World War One, shall we? Here's a few things I have. It is my opinion, I'm going to call it that, that World War One is the most misunderstood moment in history. Now, I want to be clear, that's not the same thing as the most forgotten moment in history. There are loads of them. But the thing about World War One, it's one of these things where people 
think they know something about it. And actually, a lot of things you know about World War I are fundamentally wrong. A case in point, and sort of 1917 shows this, is that the generals had run out of ideas. They had no other plans whatsoever, but they did. Let's take it from a very brief overview from basically year to year, bringing us up to 1917, okay? So, in August 1914, the Germans start attacking simultaneously on two fronts. Not a great idea. So, they push out into the Russian Empire. I'm going to ignore the Eastern Front for the rest of this statement, okay? Then, on the West, they punch through Belgium and they move into France. So, there's pretty rapid advancement for the first month. You get things like the Miracle at Marne, where the British expeditionary force, with very few soldiers, actually managed to hold off an entire German front, and it sort of runs out of steam, even though the British were very close to breaking there, but that stops the Germans from getting any further forwards. The bulk of the fighting is done by the French army rather than the British army. The British absolutely do do fighting, but this is France's home country. And indeed, more French men sort of like cycled through this war by percentage than any other war in French history, because what else are you going to do when France is that badly under attack at a time of industrialization? At the beginning of the war, the French wore red trousers, because that's kind of the traditional thing that the Frenchmen did, but very quickly they were taken away to these sort of like light blue uniforms that got muddy, etc., and therefore blended in pretty well as camouflage. Uh, the red trousers stuck out like a sore thumb, they were absolutely perfect targets for German machine gunners, and that's why the French suffered such heavy casualties in the summer of 1914. But the French army adapted. The other thing that happened in early 1915 is once the trench networks were dug, at this point, you've got all sides kind of fossilized. In a way, Germany's won. They've already taken a sliver of France and most of Belgium. They already have enlarged their areas. So Germany isn't planning on going anywhere, whereas the Allies have to push back again to dislodge the Germans off this territory, which is why there's such bloody casualties on the Allied side, and it seems to be lighter on the Germans, because it's always easier to defend, basically. But one of the first changes to both the British soldiers and the French soldiers is if you're carrying in a trench and the Germans start firing fragmentation shells or mortar rounds above your trench, is if you're wearing a cloth cap, which both sides had at the beginning of the war, it's just going to pierce your skull and you die. So, we do not have the money, nor would you want to wear full body armour, but if you wear a brimmed helmet, a Brody helmet in Britain, then basically it covers almost all of you if you're looking directly down on you. It's extraordinarily effective armour while you're sitting in a trench. And while yes, it means none of the rest of you is covered in armour and you are likely to be shot if you go over the top, the idea about that is you're meant to be supported by artillery shells, airplanes, tanks, etc. Those happen a bit later. So the idea is that you're moving, you're a fast-moving target, so you're hard to hit, or you're being able to hide behind a tank, so nobody can hit you. So this is all relatively sensible as I'm describing it to you. But that's 1914, so it is rapid movement. We neutralize it with trench warfare, and also at the beginning of 1915, we start introducing steel helmets to preserve the troops. 
The other thing we do in February of 1915 is the forgotten ally of Germany in World War I is the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe, and their capital city is Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, which is actually on the very edges of Ottoman territory, and it's very close to the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So, in February of 1915, French, British, and Australian and New Zealand soldiers landed in Gallipoli, or the Dardanelles, the Dardanelles campaign. This was led by Winston Churchill. He wasn't literally on the battlefield, but it was his plan. It was meant to be a liaison between the army and the navy. It was a good idea. You land at the Dardanelles, you are a hundred miles or so away from the capital city of the entire empire. So if you can land successfully, it's not a long fight to get towards the capital city. You capture the capital, you've now knocked out an entire empire that is supporting the Germans. So you basically got the Germans, you got the Austro-Hungarians, and you got the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire seemed to be the easiest one to knock out. And everything I've just said makes logical sense, but it was poorly executed. The landings took too long. It allowed the Ottoman soldiers to set up trenches. And so actually this thing drags on to January 16, where eventually everybody left is evacuated. Basically, it turns into the trench warfare of the West, only in blistering heat. So all kinds of horrible. But I want to be quite clear on this. You might think, oh, that was the one with all the Anzacs, the Australian New Zealand forces. Yeah, but there were more French and British soldiers there than anything else. But of course, proportionally, it meant more to the Australians and New Zealanders because they weren't losing men later on in the Somme and places like that. So there's a little bit of myth-making or nation-building by associating the losses there of those men with what was going on in terms of like recognizing what exactly is Australianness because we're a colony. Well, that's kind of the founding cornerstone of those two nations. Well done to you guys, but it's an example of what's actually misunderstood because the idea is, indeed, there are certain sort of like movies and TV shows or things like that, which kind of show the British officers were incompetent and basically led the Australians to their deaths and kind of didn't care because they're Australians or New Zealanders. No, didn't happen like that at all. And also a lot of the men who went and fought had been born in Britain. As far as they were concerned, they were unironically supporting their empire. So yeah, that's a whole thing. But it shows you, it's like, well, things aren't moving much in Europe. Let's go round the corner and hit something else. It failed. But what we've got now developing in Europe is we let's move on to 1916. And we've then got a storing up. We First of all, we've got mass conscription in England and Britain. And we're now basically getting soldiers over in their hundreds of thousands rather than just a total of 100,000 soldiers. And we've been stockpiling shells. And we've also developed this type of new weapon that could go across barbed wire, which was armed with heavy machine guns or cannons to attack enemy infantry. And infantry could hide behind it, called a tank, okay? So they were involved at the very tail end of the Somme campaign. And again, everything I've just said kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It's just they didn't know that a lot of the shells were actually poorly made, so failed to detonate. They hadn't worked out that the Germans had built reinforced concrete bunkers so you could keep firing shells all day long and literally do no damage to the German forces who were just hiding correctly with cover. 
So you get the idea that people are trying things new. And also by 1916, you've got aerial dogfights. At the beginning of World War I, you've got planes being used as reconnaissance. Now you've even got balloon cores being used. Balloons being hoisted up to basically see what was going on on the other side. Of course, that's a non-moving target, and so they were an incredibly dangerous job. I find it interesting fact that pilots in airplanes were not given parachutes, but the guys in the, and sometimes the women, inside the balloons were given parachutes because if things got too hot as they were sort of like doing their reconnaissance, they could at least jump out and get out of danger in theory. You've got to be really brave to be in the era of artillery and heavy machine guns and airplanes to just be hoisted up in a static balloon to stare out a pair of binoculars and see what's going on on the other side. So you've got people trying to use technology to fix the problem. Of course, the other insidious bit of technology is, well, if nobody's moving anywhere, why don't we use chemical weapons, gas, warfare? So actually, World War I was a hotbed of trying out new ideas. Yes, airplanes have been used before in warfare, but only very briefly. Things like the RAF, the Royal Air Force, it wasn't called that at the beginning of World War I because it was still a part of the army and they didn't know how important it would happen. But by the end of World War I, you'd had London being attacked by Zeppelins. This has become known as the First Blitz. It was never called that at the time. And the Gotha bombers, which could literally, you know, carry suddenly hundreds of pounds weight, hundreds of kilos of bombs to attack London. This is something that you're going to get echoes of. It only gets more efficient in World War II, but this was happening also in World War I. So you can see things are quite different. Now, going all the way back to 1917, we can see some of this going on. For example, the British trenches, and what you see at the beginning is how complex the trench network was and how you've even got signposts or like saying things like Piccadilly Circus this way. So in other words, it's just a way for British people to get a reference. Okay, left is whatever, Piccadilly, right is whatever. I'm not going to call it necessarily anything else. It's just a trench in the middle of a muddy field. But these trenches, I love this fact, went all the way from the coast, all the way to the border of Switzerland. So they obviously weren't allowed to go into Switzerland. So what happened at the edges, and there were indeed edges of these trenches, but you know, nobody dared sort of go any further than that. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, so the British trenches are genuinely accurately portrayed. And then when they drop into the German trenches, do you remember I mentioned reinforced concrete? What do you see? You see reinforced concrete. You see the trenches are in better order than the British ones because they'd been sitting there for longer, basically, and they weren't planning on going anywhere. They were trying to defend them. So that's accurate. Then there's the very sort of, how can I put it, almost mournful scene as they walk past artillery pieces that have been spiked. What does that mean? Well, they don't want artillery to fall into the hands of the enemy. They're too heavy to carry. So what do they do? They basically put an explosive charge in the barrel, which ruptures the barrel, which makes the artillery piece useless. And just these huge brass cartridge cases used for the artillery, just lying in massive mountains, which again... You can find photos from World War I. That's completely accurate. One of the problems of it is the space and distance is condensed. But it has to be to sort of stick in a one and a half hour movie, which is apparently all done in one shot. The rifles are completely accurate. The outfits are completely accurate. But what's interesting is I want to sort of get a bit technical for a moment 
and then you get to the final trenches you finally see at the end sort of very famous bit of the movie where you've got one of the soldiers sort of running across a trench network as all the other men go over the top now those trenches are incredibly rudimentary and also they're white aren't trenches muddy well they're the color of the soil that you're digging through at the time and actually in some areas they were in particularly chalky soil so that just the fact that it's white kind of tells us which part of the front the events portrayed literally to a man didn't happen but the overall strategic area of like the germans retreated to better defenses the british moved forwards they then put in temporary trenches to add a form of protection which were chalky so this is all spot on historically accurate but there is a wonderful technical point that i would like to share with you and this is where jem geeks out a little bit what i wanted to say is you are well aware that you dig a trench and i want to say trenches in themselves aren't like a bad thing to have in war or anything like that not at all what they are is a way to defend yourself from enemy machine gun fire or enemy mortar fire or artillery fire. They are a defensive thing. Trenches have been built in sieges for thousands of years. They're not new to 1917. But what you've got is it needs to be nice and deep. You don't want to be walking along and it sort of stops at head height so people can just shoot you. So there's a little mound at the front and that's called a parapet you know, putting your head above the parapet, you've all heard that phrase. But what most people don't realise is the back of the trench is higher than the front of the trench. And that bulge at the back, that heaped soil at the back, is called a parados. So you've got the parapet at the front and you've got a parados at the back. Why is the back higher? Because when you do have to poke your head up to maybe fire a shot or look through your binoculars or whatever... If there's nothing behind you, then your head literally is sticking out like a sore thumb. And this is a mistake happening in almost all World War I movies. But in reality, if you've got something behind you, some sandbags or something behind you, you sticking your head up isn't so obvious. People aren't going to spot it so easily. And I love that fact. And I love the fact that you don't see the paradox in this movie. And even though those are temporary trenches cut out of chalky soil, Yes, that's a thing, but they still would have dug them the same way, and they still would have made sure that the back was higher than the front. So, when he gets up to do the incredibly cool run, thank you very much, Sam Mendes. Thank you very much, Roger Deakins, for making this awesome. And again, there's behind-the-scenes footage of this. As they, How did they do it? They got a bunch of men to stand up and run. So they're all running across the screen. You've got one of the soldiers running towards you into the screen, if you like, but the camera's already pulling back. Occasionally gets clipped by other men. That was not planned, but they kept it in because it just sort of like looks cool. It's an incredibly brave moment. It's an incredibly exciting moment. It's an incredibly cinematic moment. And it makes no sense whatsoever. Because if he really needed to get along the trench line that way, why the hell didn't he get out the back of the trench and crawl along the Parados side, he would have been fine. Nobody could possibly have hit him if he's hiding behind a pile of rubble. But that's not what happens. Just another couple of things about that scene is on the one hand, there's a very good thing. You literally see an officer standing there checking his watch because they didn't have radios everywhere and they certainly didn't have portable radios. Things like these artillery firing, the artillery barrages, and there were these creeping barrages. The barrage would start towards the British trench and then slowly move forwards, breaking up barbed wire, blowing up mines, and then hitting the German trenches. And by the time the shells stopped raining down on the German trench, 
the British are already three quarters of the way there already. Really clever combined arms process. And so you can see at one point a British officer looking at his watch. He is waiting for the allotted time because he knows when the artillery is going to go off and he obviously can't send his men over too early to do that. That's part one, which is good, but part two is when all these men start charging off, they're all basically corporals or privates. Where are the officers? The officers absolutely led men into battle. It's why so many of them died. They would quite often be blowing whist whistles. There's smoke in the air. Where am I meant to be going? Follow the whistle. That's leading me towards the enemy. I don't get disorientated. Something like that. No, there's no officers there. So it's by no means a perfect historical movie. It is an awesome historical movie. And it's so awesome, it inadvertently got into the head of a president of the United States. So there we go. Hope you enjoyed that one. And as always, another episode coming soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.